All right. First Thessalonians chapter four. We are uh, finally at the center of the epistle. We, we are going to look at over the next two weeks, <clears throat> the first 12 verses that make up the core, if you will, of what Paul is trying to communicate to the church at Thessalonica. And this, this connects us back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, um, where he kind of launches into this. And, and this central theme that, that we see here in this section of Scripture, there's a, there's a recognizable structure. And, and it's based on what it means to serve the living and true God. And there's three distinct but related topics that, that comprise this call to service of our Lord in verses 1 through 12. And I, I just want to make you aware of it again. I'm only going to cover the first one today, and then I'm going to take the next two next week. Because I, I think it's that important that we slow down here now that we've gotten to the meat, so to speak. We've gotten past all the thank yous, and I'm so glad for you, and now we're getting to the actual meat of the epistle. But in verses 1 through 8... We, we see a call to serve by being sexually pure. And then in verses 9 through 10, a call to serve by treating believers in love. And then in 11 through 12, a call to serve by working rather than meddling. And so we'll cover those last two uh, next week. And this week, I just want to kind of focus in on uh, and spend a lot of time on these first eight verses. So I want you to be aware of that as we're reading through this and as you're reading through it in your own time. But let's read together verses 1 through 8 together as a church. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Amen. Now, I want you to notice first in this passage, <clears throat> Paul is getting to the to the prime meat of the letter and he says an interesting thing, right? He says, "Finally then, brothers. Finally. This is the word that most of you wait with bated breath for me to say as I'm preaching on Sunday morning." No, there's some parents that lo- they, they're not happy when the finally comes out because they know they got to go back to their kids. But 
But, but I want you to see here that when I do that sometimes and then I preach for another three or four points, I'm in good company. I'm just following Paul's example here, right? Amen. Yes, right. It goes on, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now, Paul is, is asking and urging the Thessalonians to continue walking in a way that's pleasing to God. But what does that mean? It, it, it means that, that we live lives as God tells us to live our lives, that, that we are keeping his commandments. And in this section of scripture, we're going to see over the next two weeks, six commandments in particular are covered. One in this passage and five in the next passage. But then note the emphasis here. It's, it's in this passage, the, the passage where our, our moral purity, our, our, our sexual purity is discussed. Why is more emphasis given to the commandment on morality and sexual purity than the others? And the answer should be obvious to us. See, immorality is a raging monster that destroys more lives, more families, more nations than any other single evil. What God has to say needs to be heard this morning by all of us. We, we need to be reminded of this. And, and I'm going to kind of break down these eight verses like this. First, notice the, the tender exhortation that we see in verses 1 through 2, walk and live to please God. Second, we're going to see the will of God to, to be sanctified, to be set apart for righteousness in verses 3 through 5. And then finally, the reasons for purity in verses 6 through 8. So first notice the tender exhortation that we see here, that Paul is, is asking and urging them, to walk in a way that pleases God. In other words, they're, they're already pleasing God in the way that they're walking, but he's, he's asking and urging them to continue. Paul often describes the Christian life as a walk. Walking is a, a picture of moving forward and progressing step by step and day by day. It, it pictures the, the utter necessity of pleasing God with every step that we take every day of our life. It's really amazing to me when we stop and think about the fact that God is interested in every step that we take. And the primary concern of our lives should be to please God. This is the chief end of man, to glorify him, right? But, but note how tender and yet strong this exhortation is. We see the tenderness is... Seen in the words, brothers, we ask and urge. But by calling believers brothers, Paul is expressing deep affection and care for them. The, the word for ask that Paul uses has a, a sense of urgency to it. Paul is tenderly requesting his brothers to continue to please God in their daily walk. But it is an urgent request. You see, there, there seems to be this shift as you read through the Old Testament and you read through the New Testament. As you go from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, we are commanded to do these things. Right? 
You are to do these things so that you can be holy. Sacrifice these animals. Do all of these things. But, but then in the new covenant, there's this shift. And we are receiving God's holiness. And what we're asked to do in the new covenant and under the new covenant is to continue in that holiness. We already have it. We're not having to be commanded to go get it, go get it, go get it. In the new covenant, you already have it. You have Christ's holiness. And so we, we, we see this shift away from a need to command and more and just a sense of, of urging and, and asking. Just continue in what you already have. You don't have to worry like the Old Testament saints that would touch something and lose their holiness. And then they had to go through all of these things to regain it. As a believer in Christ, we've been given that free gift of his holiness. And we're just asked to continue to walk in that holiness. He's asking, but he's also urging. And we see the the strength of the exhortation in the following facts that that believers had been taught how they must walk and please God. They had sat under Paul's teaching and, and Paul had, had preached the word to them. And so they didn't have an excuse. They, they knew what they needed to know. They may not have known everything exhaustively as we're going to see as he gets into some of the end time discussions. There was a few more things he wanted to tell them before he had to leave. But, but the core of what they needed, they had. And the word ought, it's, it's an imperative, a necessity. Once they heard and had been taught how they should live to please God, they were then responsible to live that way. Pleasing God was not an option in Paul's mind. It was a requirement of walking with him. Second, the exhortation is based upon who? Paul? No, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is no greater authority than our Lord. He is the supreme, majestic being of the universe. Therefore, the exhortation to live and walk to please God is coming from the highest authority in our lives. Second, we see in verses 3 through 5, the will of God to be sanctified and, and set apart. And it can't be stated any clearer. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Right? There's no higher will than the will of God. When the the will of God is known, then the will of God must be done. And sanctification, we are told here by Paul, is the will of God. Now the word sanctification, it's a a big word and it, it basically just means the The process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ himself. Walking in his holiness until his holiness is is overriding all of our sinfulness. And causing us to love God and love others as ourselves. We're to be set apart to God and his will. And and live a life of, of purity and holiness. This means three things. Sanctification means abstaining from from fornication. Now the word fornication 
means any kind of immoral act. This is, this is kind of like a catch-all term. It can mean adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality. All forms of sexual deviation is covered by this word. The, the believer is not to give his body to an immoral person. We're not to, to give ourselves to, to prostitutes or, or women who aren't our wives or ladies, men who are not your husbands. The, the believer's body belongs to Christ. Which means that we are to honor Christ with our bodies. We're to take the sexual drive and energy that God has given us and use them as he has instructed it. Either we dedicate our bodies solely to him or we marry and build a family with the virtues of love and trust and care and loyalty. Second, sanctification means that a person knows how to control his body and his spouse. Leon Morris points out that the word vessel can refer to either a person's own body or to a person's spouse. Either interpretation is important to us and and very valid to us. We are to know how to control our own body and how to control our spouse. I know some of you guys right now are thinking, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm in trouble. You see, a person can neglect and ignore and abuse his body in the same way that a person can neglect and ignore and abuse their spouse. It's important for us to remember here what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4 through 5. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's a mutuality here. There's, again, that idea of mutual submission to one another. He goes on to say, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Neglecting, ignoring or abusing one's spouse, Paul says, can bring about temptation. And it can contribute significantly, significantly to the spouse becoming unfaithful and impure. So we always have to be on guard against that. Note that as, as followers of Jesus, we, we're to know how to possess our own body in sanctification and honor. See, there's no excuse for, for ignorance in this matter, nor for disobedience. Paul wants us to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a question in our mind, that it is our duty to keep our body and our spouse pure. And we do that by caring for them and loving them and not neglecting them the same way we would treat our own body, right? In Romans 6, 19, Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul's point is clear. It is unthinkable that we would engage in fornication of any kind. 
that, that we would bring dishonor to our Lord and to our spouse and to our family and ultimately even to ourselves. Husband and wives walking in a way that pleases the Lord must keep themselves and their spouse in sanctification and honor. Growing to be like Jesus and honoring them. Third, sanctification means resisting the passion of lust. Paul uses this term here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice the double emphasis in the wording. Not just passions and not just lust, but the passions of lust. It means the enslaving power of lust. When a person begins to lust, he he can soon find himself becoming enslaved, wrapped in cords, as the proverb says, and just trapped and, and, and just held in the grip of lust to such a degree that it's, it's almost impossible to break the bondage. This is true with the passion for looking, right? We say to ourselves, there's no harm in looking. And we look once, twice, three times. And then before we know it, we've got to look every day. Passion for manipulation. Sometimes we manipulate our spouses. It could be a passion for sex, passion for sexual conquest, a passion for pornography. And, and men, you know, typically this is more visual, typically. And women, this is more a, a passion for romantic and immoral reading. Again, typically, there's crossover in both. But I talk to a lot of women that I, I, you know, I don't look at any, I don't look at naked women, I don't look at that kind of stuff. But they read tons of stories and watch tons of movies that have the exact same thing in it. James 1, 14 through 15, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Guys, one of the things to remember, this is true with any sin, but especially with lust. Sin always seeks to express itself in the extreme. Sin always seeks to express itself in the extreme. It's never satisfied. It's always wanting more. That, that's the, the pattern that James lays out there in, in 1, 14 through 15. That, that when it, it gives birth to sin and then sin, when it's fully grown, it brings death. And that's what sin does. The passion of lust is the, the way of the world that we live in, folks. <laughs> this is just everyday life for us. But it's not the way of God. It's the lifestyle of those who do not know God. And this doesn't mean that they don't know how, they don't know that sexual immorality is wrong. It means that they have rejected God and his commandments. They, they've chosen to live in the passion of their lusts. And we are called to please God and to keep the commandments of our Lord Jesus 
And the major commandment here is our sanctification. Therefore, we are to abstain from fornication in all forms of immoral sex. Third, the reasons for purity we see here in the last part of this scripture in verses 6 through 8. There's at least four reasons Paul gives why we are to live pure lives. And the reasons stand as a severe warning to us. First, immorality defrauds and cheats a brother. Immorality defrauds and cheats a brother. Anytime there is fornication, it always defrauds and steals from a person. It either takes a wife from her husband or else it takes a husband from his wife. It's that simple. But it's also that tragic and that terrible. It steals one of two major partners of a family. It it, it could steal their heart. It could steal their affection. It can steal their thoughts. It can steal their purity. It can steal their body. It can steal their innocence. And it can steal their trust and trustworthiness. And the terrible tragedy is that none of these can ever be recovered, not completely, not fully. Once the heart, the the affections, the thoughts, the purity, the body, the innocent and trust have been lost, they are lost. And the affected person lives forever with that. The marriage and its bond of trust is damaged forever. And the pain and the hurt, it, it always lingers in some degree. And the, the commitment and ability to totally surrender to the spouse always suffers to some degree. I'm not saying that you can't get over it and you can't get past it. I'm just saying there's always going to be damage. There's always going to be that, that what if that wasn't even there before. Right? Right? There's so many times I counsel people who are struggling with um, getting over an affair. And and the temptation of the spouse, either way, husband or wife, to check their phone. You know, I don't even think about that with Amber. it's, It's not even a thought process for me. But for the rest of their life... That's a thought process for them. You see, there's a little bit of trust that was destroyed. And even if they work through it, even if they get past it, there's still that lingering thought in the back of their mind. Maybe I should check their phone. So it causes destruction. Second, immorality will be avenged by God. And this point, needs to be heated, especially in our society where immorality is not only accepted, but platformed and encouraged. How dare we say that immorality is accepted and encouraged in our society? We'll compare the emphasis and appeal of television and movies, books and magazines, TikToks and Instagram reels, how they promote products and sell you things. The list could go on and on. But the point is this. God is going to judge immoral behavior. 
no matter how much the world accepts it. You see, society doesn't make the rules. God does. And he has given the intimacy and preciousness of sex for marriage and only for marriage. And he has made it perfectly clear that any sex outside of marriage will not only be judged, but he will personally avenge the guilty party. We see this in passages like Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. For the wrath of God, excuse me, in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? Because the guilty party stole from a person. The guilty party broke the person's trust and innocence for the rest of their life. And God promises to avenge that. Third, immorality is not God's call. Holiness is God's call on our life. When God calls us to salvation, he does not call us to live unclean lives, giving us the the license to go from person to person. Such immorality, it destroys genuine love for others. It destroys discipline and self-control. It, it destroys trust and trustworthiness of ourself and others. It destroys confidence and assurance in self and others. It destroys loyalty and commitment within ourself and within others. It destroys families. And ultimately, if left unchecked, if you study history, it destroys nations. And God never calls us to do such terrible things. God calls us to holiness, to, to live lives that are set apart to him and to, to purity to our spouses and our families. God calls us to build strong character and community, strong families and nations. God calls us to holiness so that we can be strong enough to reach out to the world that reels under the awful weight of sin and suffering and death. You see, the gospel gives us hope. There there is salvation from evil and suffering and from death and judgment in this world. And when we trust and we put our our faith in what he has done for us, we take on his holiness Verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. When we fail, we confess and we repent of our sin, cleansing us of all unholiness, as it says in 1 John. When we live a gospel-centered life, we build the strongest character. We build the strongest families, the strongest communities possible in order to then go out and reach the world. The last thing we see is that immorality is a sin against God. The word disregards there in verse 8 means to reject. We, we live in a world that disregards God's gospel because they think they are so enlightened. 
They see Christianity as some relic of the past that's no longer needed in our modern day and age. So they set about rewriting what marriage means. I mean, they're rewriting what it even means to be a man or a woman. Because after all, in a world that disregards God, they set themselves up as their own God. But note what Paul says. If you disregard God, God can take vengeance and he will. Every human being who breaks the commandment shall receive the vengeance of God unless he has repented and sought forgiveness of God. Note finally that God has given believers the Holy Spirit in verse 8. The, the very presence of God in all his majesty dwells within our bodies. We must not, therefore, contaminate our bodies with any kind of immorality. So that the, majest, the majesty of God himself does not also then become defiled with us. The Holy Spirit, who is holy, right? He is the Holy Spirit. There are other spirits, but he is the Holy Spirit. He is within us. We, we must therefore keep our bodies holy. Let me, let me end this sermon and say finally, like Paul. With just one point of application from our text this morning. And while, again, there's some debate, I'll admit exactly what Paul means in verse 4. It's the only time he uses this term in the Bible, so it's, it's difficult sometimes for us to know exactly which way to go. But I really think the RSV interpretation gets this passage correct. When it says in verse 4 that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like heathen, who do not know God. I think Paul's using a, a, an expression that was common at the time that doesn't translate very well for us when he uses this term about taking a vessel. And, and, and I want to address those of you who are here and not yet married. Especially those of you who are in high school or middle school. One of the reasons I believe that the divorce rate among Christians is no different than the world's divorce rate is because we use the same criteria that the world does in selecting a mate. And I think if we heeded Paul's words here in this passage about knowing how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, we, we could save ourselves a whole lot of physical and emotional and spiritual pain. You see, one of the world's biggest reasons for marriage in the world that we live in is the one thing that this passage prohibits, the passions of lust. But I also want to address those of you who are already married as well. So don't just think you can tune out. See, Proverbs 31 gives us a great picture of what a godly woman looks like. And one thing I find interesting in that description is that there's no mention of her physical appearance. Instead, we learn that she is trustworthy. She is good. She's industrious. She's hardworking. She's financially wise. 
She is strong. She is confident. She is generous. And she is kind with her words. When the author does get to the physical appearance, they say this in verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, I think, young folks, if if we spend more time and energy looking for a spouse that is a spouse that is trustworthy, good, industrious, hardworking, financially wise, strong, confident, generous, and kind with their words. Again, that that those things go for both men and women. Right? So if if, if that's more of what you're looking for than we did trying to find someone that is physically attractive the way the world does our divorce rates would be dramatically different. Now, for those of you who are married this morning, I want you to consider the warning we find in Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs chapter 5, the adulterous woman or immoral woman is described. And it says things like this, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Talk about how the world focuses. We, we, we focus so much in this world about a woman's beauty and her seductiveness. In, in the same way that Paul is saying here, don't, don't be like the Gentiles in their, in their passions of lust. We, we as Christians need to remember that. We as married people need to remember that because it's so easy in our world to have little windows into all of these other women's lives. And we can begin to look and linger a little too long at all of these women who look so seductive. Half of which or more are completely photoshopped and don't even look like what you think they look like. Right? It's like when the woman wakes up first thing in the morning and the husband looks over and it's like, ooh, she's reset to factory conditions. I don't know that I like this. Right? The internet is just a hundred times worse. Because you don't ever see her the next morning. You don't see her at her worst. We, we, we develop these pictures in our minds. And, and then we start to look at our spouse and compare. Against a standard that's, that's not only not fair, it's not even real most of the time. Paul says, or excuse me, Proverbs says in verse 15 of chapter 5, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing waters from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for you yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son? For 
with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Remember, the Lord will avenge the immoral. And he ponders all his past. The, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of sin. Again, that picture of being trapped in the passions of lust. But you know the thing that amazes me about Proverbs chapter 5? Is this woman does all of these things to tempt this man. But God doesn't say that's the problem. Instead, verse 23, he dies for a lack of discipline. He dies for a lack of discipline. What does that mean? Well, he didn't stop looking the first couple of times. A woman, a beautiful woman passes by, you can't help but see her and go, okay, that's a beautiful woman. But be disciplined to stop looking once she walks by. To stop thinking about her once she has left. Right? When we're not disciplined, when we're not walking with the Lord, when we are not being sanctified, we are tempted to fall into immorality and sin. Many of you know people, pastors, prominent politicians, leaders that seem to go so long in their life And yet, because of a lack of discipline, they give in. And they let the woman that's described in Proverbs 5 come in the door. And just like it lays out in Proverbs chapter 5, it brings destruction and ruin over their whole lives. Why? Because there was a beautiful woman there? No, because of a lack of discipline. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to walk in the walk that he has called us to walk, that that means disciplining ourselves every day to get up and put one foot in front of the other. To to love, listen, this is a beautiful picture of love. Some of my favorite verses are here in Proverbs chapter 5, right? We, We are to enjoy the wife of our youth that God has given us. Discipline ourselves to love her and her alone. Ladies, discipline yourselves to love your husband and him alone. Don't go looking elsewhere for what God has given you. And for those of you who are sitting here going, yeah, but I'm single. Remember, every act of sexual immorality you're stealing from somebody's future husband or wife. And I want to encourage you this morning, look for those characteristics in Proverbs 31. Whether you're a man or a woman, look for somebody who's trustworthy. Look for somebody who's kind with their words. Look for somebody who's industrious. Paul's going to talk about in the next section, in the next sermon that I'm going to preach next week about the importance of being industrious. Look for those kind of characteristics. It's okay to have a physical connection as well. I'm not saying throw that out the window. 
But, but look for character. Look for a woman who, or a man who fears the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for instructing us and guiding us and caring enough about us to tell us the truth. Lord, so many times we are living in the way in, where, in which the world that we live in lives. And we, we, we're just so surrounded by it, Lord, and, and so uh, disconnected from your word that, that we just follow in its footsteps. And Lord, this morning, there, there may be people in this room that, that are, are struggling with immorality in, in some shape or form, God. Lord, I pray that they would confess that and repent of that this morning. They would turn away from that and begin to discipline themselves, Lord. So that they might not be ensnared in the cords of sin. But instead, Lord, they allow your gospel to break them free. And to live the life that you have called them to live, Lord. And Father, maybe this morning we, we need to confess and repent for some of our past immorality. The, the way in which we have stolen from someone else the, 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 the trustworthiness or the innocence of their spouse, God. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would go into those areas of our hearts that we're holding on to that we need to let go of. Not so that you would berate us and punish us, but so that you would fill us even more, Lord. That, that we would receive even more of your grace and, and understand just how much we have been forgiven of, Lord. And to truly understand what the Word says when when it says you loved us while we were still enemies. As we see all of the ways in which we should be avenged because of our immorality, and yet you loved us and sent your son to die for us. Oh God, we thank you for your faithfulness and your forgiveness. For without it, we would be nothing. But with it, Lord, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit the ability to walk a new path and eternal life with you and the new earth to come. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' name.